complete comprehensive mastery is not, just simply not an option for incomplete people. That, that's sort of God's territory, not mine. And so I think there, the door is always open. There's always one more drawer to open before you can make comp- and, and you know the, the final judgment. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. David Zoll is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, editor-in-chief of the Mockingbird website, and co-host of the Mockingcast. His new book is Low Anthropology, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. David Zoll, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. It's a real pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. So we're talking the day after release day for uh, your new book, Low Anthropology, uh, subtitle, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. (laughs) It is. There's a lot swirling right now. Yes, it's uh, (laughs) everything that's involved in releasing a book these days. Yeah, um, is is currently what my life consists of. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I'm so glad you made time to to make uh, the Habit Podcast part of that swirl. Um, so, tell me what you mean by that phrase, low anthropology. Yeah, um, I was laughing last night because a, a former edit, an editor of mine who worked with me on another book said he 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 loved the book, but that he would have fought me tooth and nail on the title because okay. it, it immediately sounds to people like you're 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 either um back to college and taking a class that you maybe don't understand or uh or you're talking about kind of tribes in the outback of australia yeah uh, i'm using the term and i know ologies are a little intimidating but i'm using the term the way that theologians and philosophers use it which I think is really just to, uh, as shorthand, in fact, mm-hmm. is not something intimidating, shorthand for what a, what a person, what, what your theory or view of human nature is. Yeah. So when, when you say the words, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only human, what, what does that mean? What are the presuppositions? What mm-hmm. are the unconscious or conscious uh, things that go into a statement as broad as this is what it means to be human? Mm-hmm. So low anthropology is, uh, um, I would call it, uh, I would chart, you could chart uh, anthropologies or like views of human nature on really optimistic, or I would say, instead of using the word pessimistic, I'd use the word less optimistic or sobering. So <laughs> okay. um, grandiose and really almost operatic views of human nature uh, that are very uh, glamorous. Um would be high anthropologies or, mm-hmm. uh, and then a low anthropology would be something that s- instead of saying human beings are uh, one dimensionally bad versus good, it'd be much more that we are made up of a lot of different factors and that what unites us more reliably than our strengths are, our, mm-hmm. our, our sort of weakness, our experience of loss and, and grief and, and, um, yeah. Yeah. Sin. I, um, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about um, uh, when when Frederick Beekner in um, uh, the what is what's the book about the the gospelist fairy tale uh, uh, tragedy comedy and fairy tale. That's the I'm, subtitle. I'm and the, I know the I know the book though. Yeah. I was quoting but the other day. Um, uh, Telling the truth is the book. 
Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about um, uh, the wisdom of a Charlie Chaplin movie. You know, this, this, the little tramp who, uh, who can't quite get it together. And yet in that, uh, in his failures and the little tramp's failures, um, he makes room. He's open to grace. Mm. Right. And, and his, uh, and, and grace always intervenes. And, and that's sort of the comic view. It's, the, the the comic view of human history requires a low anthropology in your terms. I think uh, yes. rather than heroic. I think that's that's one hundred percent true. Because you, you see the great the great force for good and redemption in the world as a Christian, I I think is is God. I think that's the great force for uh, the um the, the or the hero is is Jesus. So um, I don't see much room for those kind of arcs without a necessary, uh, you know, obstacle or a human simile, the burden, the burden of being of what it means to be alive and the need not only for help from other people, but from ultimately deliverance from God. So yeah, absolutely. I think I, I don't, I don't feel it's a contention of the book and maybe it's a controversial one, but I don't feel the, the Christian faith, uh, it kind of rests on a low anthropology or it's, it's very hard to understand it without one. You mm-hmm. have to make, you have to remake a lot of stuff in order to uh, inflate the image of the human, of our capabilities and our motivations and our lack of limitation or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, I, just this year I've had, I've had a few podcast guests talk about, um, the the value of embracing our our limitations. So you know, thinking of our humanness not in terms necessarily of you know to or you know the saying to err is human. Well, mm. um, in one sense, okay, right? Everybody everybody errs, but the, but the more relevant fact of our humanness perhaps is our limitation, right? Mm. Which incorporates erring. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but by acknowledging our own limitation, um, it, you know, in so do we make room for grace and we, we make room to, to, um, go beyond our limitations, um, by acknowledging that because we're limited, we need help beyond our own. Yes. I mean, I, I think. Limitation, it's, I, I have noticed actually in the past, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's what the, the weight that COVID put on us or the clarity <laughs> that it put on us and yeah. being so confronted with our physical limitations, our biological limitations, yeah. and uh, being just so put upon by uh, something outside of our control. But I have noticed a, uh, a, a wave of books that are, many of which I just absolutely applaud. I'd, yeah. Um, it, encouraging people to um, accept their limitations or as limitations as, a, as again, as a gateway to grace. I think that we're living in a time and maybe we've always been living in a time. Maybe it's simply part of our low anthropology to reject limitations, <laughs> but um, where everyone feels like they're being asked, not just a lot of, but uh, more than they can possibly do. Mm-hmm. And whether that be pe- friends of mine who are in the Academy, who, have to, you know, produce enormous amounts of fresh research and writing as well as teach a ton of classes and serve on every committee known to man, or simply uh, 
young parents, you know, who mm-hmm. are not only, uh, you know, s- secretaries and disciplinarians and providers, but they're also full on entertainment all the time. So there's like a, there we're the, the air that we breathe right now is very uncomfortable with limitation mm-hmm. and saying this far, this is what you're capable of. And this is what you're actually not capable of. We, we, I think we hear that as a no and as possibly a potential for source of shame when in mm-hmm. fact, what I'm trying to say in the book is that the real shame really comes into view when you feel you are capable of these, all this stuff and pulling it off. You just haven't managed to do it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, where, I love it. That's so true. Real um, yeah, there's no, sh- there shouldn't be any shame in not being an infinite being because we're not infinite beings. <laughs> it's not shame. regardless of what the internet may may lead us to. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, uh, what if your, I guess maybe your first illustration of what high anthropology is, uh, you know, there in your introduction, you quote a commencement speech from Steve Jobs. Mm, yeah, um, and here's what Steve Jobs said. And you describe this kind of talk as oppressive and embittering. <laughs> and here's what Steve Jobs said. Uh, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow know what you truly want to become. That doesn't sound embittering or oppressive at first blush. Tell me about that. What, what is well, what what's I would say, if, if you're a person who's never thought of your intuition as having anything of value, I, if you're a person who has... Um, now, I don't think undergraduates at Stanford are necessary in this category. Okay. However, if you're a person who has been told that they're a worm and that they don't have anything worthwhile to contribute to the human race or simply their own life, mm-hmm. talk like that, um, which points a person towards their own internal resources and say, hey, there actually is something of value inside and that maybe you should pay attention to it and that that's not going to, um, uh, to, to that might may not be the end of the world. And that's a good thing. A person, I think, who's been heard nothing but negativity in that regard might hear that not as, in, as of course, not as embittering. Yeah. I'm approaching that much more as not, well, I approach it, first of all, as someone who works with college students at a major public university, University of Virginia, mm-hmm. but also as someone who's now 43 and no longer 22 and isn't always that thrilled with where my intuition has led me mm-hmm. and has, and, um, and, and has, has, has learned to adopt a little bit of self-suspicion <laughs> when it comes to yeah. What about this intuition I have or this dream I have? What about this is pure self-aggrandizement that will re- result in misery yeah. and alienation of, from other people? And what about it is God-given and using my gifts and sort of, a, you know, what is the, the, the Beekner wonderful quote about where the world's need meets your, your own God-given gifts and interests? So... I would say it's embittering and oppressive in the sense that it shackles people to a uh, a view of themselves that is um, impossible to interrogate, and ultimately is is a young man's fantasy. It's much easier to say when you're Steve Jobs and you do happen to have not only had a real genius for sight, but you also have been equipped with a personality that apparently was very alienating to his loved ones, but also gave him the ability to force things through and to adopt certain things that have been world-changing and have been exciting and have 
forced people into all sorts of new things that have also, of course, enslaved massive amounts of us to our phones. However, I would want to say that uh, there's a whole lot of like a good fortune that that man has, 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 has been involved with that it's hard to see. So, so what I'm saying is when I hear that, I, I am immediately confronted with the ways in which I'm not where I want to be. My mm-hmm. dreams don't, don't seem to have worked out in the way that I wanted them to. And that my intuitions have been informed by all sorts of um, factors, some of which are great, but some of which are totally arbitrary. And in fact, derived from a place of insecurity and fear rather than the desire to serve my fellow humans. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly is to be told you can be anything is is exhilarating until it's not. <laughs> yes, <laughs> until I'm not. You just, you just said it in a much better cogent way. <laughs> it's amazing until the day when it's nothing yeah. and it's terrible, and you're like, "Wait a second. Until my piece of the birthday, pie? You thought, "Wait a minute. I thought that this was going to be different by the time I turned forty. For me, that was the difference between turning 40 and turning 50 was when I turned 40. It was like, wait, I had other ideas. And by the time I turned 50, I was a little more ready to say, this is the life that I've been given. And it's, it's pretty good too, as I live in, as I live into it. I mean, not just pretty good. I'm, there's a, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for this life. Um, once I settled into the idea that no, this is that imaginary life, mm-hmm. Steve Jobsy, you can be anything you want to be life. Um, once I let go of that and said, instead said, here's, here are the good things that, that I, that I find myself living into. Um, well, you know, the, when you say that, right, when you say that to me, I find a point of, um, of connection and sympathy. And I all of a sudden find that very lovable and I feel less alone in my own sense in which I'm accepting coming to accept the life I've been given versus the life I wanted. And there's something really beautiful about that. Um, but that's, I think in my mind, that's demonstrable of a a low anthropology that says you just, you just, uh, whether you meant to or not, maybe it's just in your character as part of this sort of, uh, you know, uh, more fully realized 50 year old, uh, you've just, um, confessed something almost and, uh, something that life did not go according to what this, these, this, this upward progression and narrative arc of like better, 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 better. And as a result, I feel an increase of, um, of goodness in the world, <laughs> at least in my personal world over these, this Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. High anthropology, low anthropology, um, a high anthropology can, can lead me to um, a pretty bad case of imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, and a low anthropology could possibly um, be a rescue me from uh, the you know, an imposter syndrome. I'm getting, I'm getting this again from your book. So let's talk about that. Um, imposter syndrome comes up. Uh, this of course is a podcast. Um that's listened to in large, in large part by people who are interested in doing creative work and um, imposter syndrome, of course, can rear its ugly head in any field, but it seems like people trying to do creative work mm. are especially susceptible to imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. I don't think I've ever met 
uh, someone who trying to do something creative, who's not completely afflicted by imposter syndrome or hasn't been at some mm-hmm. point of their journey. And by imposter syndrome, it's the sense that everyone else has things figured out. Everyone else has a plan or mm-hmm. meant to be exact, has gotten to be exactly where they want to be and has um, figured out all the angles and they're the, you are the only one. And if people only find new that what was really going on, then they would sort of excommunicate you. Yeah. I, now I, I say in the book, I find that to be almost a universal condition of like, you know, you know, college students, middle school students, uh, people in retirement homes, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I uh, people, certainly men in their forties with small children, like it's a very much a, Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing with these kids. Like, uh, but it sure seems like so-and-so down the block Mm-hmm. leave the summer trip that they planned and like how, how do you even do that we're just yeah. we're just barely getting by or flying by the seat of our pants so yeah imposter syndrome is um i think it is usually evidence of a high anthropology meaning we have swallowed a a an understanding of the world that there are people who are simply better than us categorically and more mm-hmm. capable and it 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 um it is uh it is express or manifests in certain kind of creative ways and that we're the only ones. A low anthropology tends to, uh, I, I quote Anne Lamott, Anne Lamott, who, you know, she's written about this as well as anyone. And she was my great, she's my great exemplar of low anthropology because <laughs> she says that everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. And um, they're much more like you than, than they would care to admit, or you would even mm-hmm. care to admit. And so then try therefore not to compare their outsides with your insides yeah, or your insides with their outsides. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the grounding truth of a lot of people who are in, involved in, in just this thing we call life, but to say nothing of writing or painting. Yeah. I'm married to a, a painter and she struggles with almost the, all these same dynamics. So yeah. I guess what you would say is that a low anthropology, a high anthropology extrapolates your sense of what's normal from, uh, appearances and from Uh other people what you see what you see in other people and a low anthropology extrapolates your sense of what's normal from what you see inside yourself oh that's good yeah yeah i mean didn't how many writers have have i read about who say you know it's the funniest thing happens the more deeply i drill into my own insecurities and fears the more deeply they and it and 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 broadly they resonate Mm -hmm. uh and it's more when I stay on the surface of things that I that people say I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's the same yeah. thing in preaching, by the way. Huh? Yeah. I um, the the Annie Lamont quote or paraphrase that you just offered of comparing my inside to other people's outsides. Uh, you know, something I talk to writers about pretty often is you're comparing your. And this didn't originate with me, but you're comparing your early draft. You, you look at a at a book which is in its most it's, it's been worked on by a dozen people, um, you know, and and you compare your first or second draft to a finished book. You say, I'll never, you know, I'm, I must be an imposter because I I ha- my dr- first draft doesn't look like a completed book, mm-hmm. and of course <laughs> it doesn't look like a completed book. It doesn't look like your own last complete. If you're a person who's written yeah. multiple drafts, I'm afflicted by that. When I was yeah. writing this, I'd, I'd had some moderate success with the last book, and I thought, "Oh, I'll never come anywhere close to that." And I forget. Oh my goodness, this was I had a very good editor on this. I had mm-hmm. this person helping me with this section. I had yeah. 15 copy editors, but and chopping and 
churning things around. And by the time it was done, yes, it was considerably better than this thing that just I have sort of been in a woodshed somewhere working yeah. on and yeah. it didn't emerge completely fully formed. And therefore I feel terrible about myself and I should just go hide forever yeah. um, rather than submit myself again to the beautiful, but also painful process of being uh, edited and collaborated mm-hmm. with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one more anecdote about uh, imposter syndrome and, and the value of a, a low anthropology. Uh, I had an acquaintance who uh, she had done all but her dissertation. It was just struggling to get her dissertation done to finish her PhD, but she was bumping up against the whatever the time limit was. I think you have seven years or whatever to finish after you finish your coursework to mm. finish your PhD. And she was getting close to it. And she was in her advisor's office, you know, uh, crying and and talking about what a failure she was, what an imposter she was. And um, about that time, the bell rang for the classes to let out. And the the professor's office was in the, there in the classroom. And the professor said, come here, let's walk out here with me. And as the professors, you know, were passing down the hall, he said to her, see that guy? He's an idiot. <laughs> that That guy right there can barely tie his shoes, you know, She's he kind of you know went through all, all these people who had, he's, he said he's got a PhD she's got a PhD he's got a PhD sit down and write your dissertation and <laughs> and she did she went she went home and and you know that was from that day on from that day forward she was able to finish that dissertation uh, by remembering that's beautiful <laughs> I mean yeah. again she was he wasn't she wasn't wasn't a pep talk and saying you were the best thing you're just as good as any of these people. <laughs> It was more like, no, you're just as screwed. Like, there, trust me, it, you're yeah. even more screwed up than you are. And then all of a sudden, a person feels hope. And isn't that this weird but wonderful, counterintuitive, beautiful irony of yeah. of life as, as a person? And I all of a sudden want to, instead of, you know, I read authors all the time that make me nev- that are so good, I never want to write ever again. And then I read someone who's terrible, and I think, oh, I could probably do this. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully you can get to a place though where you where you read somebody somebody who has done something you could never do and you say, "Great, that person did what I could. I'm glad they did that because I couldn't. Now let me yes. see what I can do." Yes, you know, and that's one thing I try to talk about in this in this book a little bit. I think low anthropology. Again, I really um, it's only superficially is it an invitation to sort of some sort of lesser view of oneself. It's it's much more much more deeply. It's a view of yourself as incomplete, which means that you can benefit from other people, from their help, from their collaboration, from their, that they have gifts that you don't have, and you might have Mm. gifts that they don't have. And isn't that beautiful, the tapestry that we get to take part in as being one of, you know, God's creatures in the world, or however you want to put that. Yeah. But I find that to be um, a wonderful and exciting prospect, Yeah. rather than the sense that I have my one shot and... I am either capable of perfection or not. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like this is going to have its own blind spots and biases or whatever. And yet it's going to be the one that I can produce. And mm-hmm. um, I yeah. find the process inherently exciting and uh, fruitful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, and it's not a question of figuring out where do I fit in the hierarchy of writers or academics or dentists or whatever it's saying here's my patch of ground that's mine to tend to mm-hmm. um and as i tend to this little patch of ground i've got something to offer um and it's not going to be what you know 
for me, it's not going to be what David Zoll can offer. Right. And, um, and that's just fine. And yet still, the patch of ground that you offer is going to be only richer and only more resonant is the word I keep coming back to, but more, um, you know, telegraphing or just communicative, uh, abreactive, if you were able to drill down into your own uh, inadequacies and your own mm. lacks. I, I, I remember Mary Carr has that wonderful book on the art of memoir where she talks mm. about every single draft of memoir she's ever read, even from what she calls grown-ass writers, that the traits of character they try hardest, that they're most embarrassed about, that they try hardest to conceal, are invariably the ones in which the gold lies and mm. where where that that are that prove to be in I think she calls it invaluable facets of character and uh, um, perspective or something like that. Yeah, but it's not I, in the stuff you are most proud of. It's in the stuff you're actually trying to cover over with words or yeah. cleverness. I not too long ago I listened to an audio book of a of a it was an autobiography of a of an artist who had a, a bit of a shaky reputation. And um, I thought it'd be interesting to see what she has to say for herself, you know, mm. and what she had to say for herself was defensive and, and why she wasn't that, that bad, not, not as bad as everybody seemed to think. And it was just, it, it was just such a flat autobiography. And I thought mm. I would have, you know, I was willing to hear your side of the story to hear that, you know, to, and to understand you know, that, that you were a little, you know, I was ready to, to, to like this person more mm. and I couldn't like, <laughs> like her more <laughs> because she was so busy, you know, explaining why she wasn't wrong. Shoring up the defenses. Yeah. That's, that's too bad. Cause I'm sure there, there's probably even in that person there. Oh, I, I don't doubt it one bit. I think that, you know, it's a real modern question of like, what do you do with, very troubled people who create acts of great beauty and mm-hmm. um, they certainly make it, we make it harder on ourselves sometimes when we get defensive. I mean, and mm-hmm. I'm already experiencing some, uh, some mild criticism of this book. And uh, part of me, I go into that internal battle of like, Oh, let me <laughs> disprove this. Let me, <laughs> let me tell everyone why I'm right and why they're wrong. And, and unfortunately yeah. I've written a book that kind of, uh, dismantles that yeah right (laughs) it kind of undercuts me before i even (laughs) try but you know nick cave the singer songwriter said something interesting recently he said maybe an act of of art or some art can be measured by the distance it has to travel from the character of the artist Uh, wow (laughs) okay there you go yeah he said it not me yeah Okay, I want to. Here's a passage that that feels to me like it's actually just a couple of sentences from your book that, in some ways, summarizes why I think people who want to do creative work or people, especially people who want to write, uh, might ought to read this book. You're right. Low anthropology keeps the avenues of of communication open. It provides a bulwark against burnout. It has led to a kinder view of myself. And a fount of curiosity, courtesy, honesty, humor, compassion, connection, and love. <laughs> Those are that list is a list of things that writers need. Um, and I, you've already been you've already talked about why it keeps avenues of communication open. Um, 
we might ought to talk about burnout. Um, but can you say more about curiosity, courtesy, honesty, humor, compassion, connection, and love? Um, sure. Because, I, you know, again, yeah. is, is why is optimism about human nature? Um, okay, I, I, I may, this not a, may not be a fair way to ask the question, but is optimism, um, does it undercut curiosity and uh, and these other things that you curiosity and courtesy and honesty? Yeah. Well, I think what undercuts curiosity is certainty. Mm-hmm. That is, and uh, certainty is just simply not available to uh, someone who who is defined by a low anthropology. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you are inherently incomplete and in need of help from other people. And you, we talk about having blind spots or however much you, that you are. You have a patch of land. You don't have the whole globe. Um, if you uh, you cannot be completely certain about anything, and so that means you never stop. Sometimes this is theoretical, but I find it to also be true in practice. If you truly believe that you do not know all there is to know about X, Y, or Z, and that includes other people, and that includes yourself then you will keep looking and you'll be mm. open to, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, 99.9% of things, but <laughs> if you don't know that 1%, well, that's also the difference between keeping the c- communication open between you and your mm. spouse. For example, if you're not one, you, you, you may be 99% sure, you know what she's going to say uh, in this mm. particular situation, but a uh, low anthropology says you actually can never know you are not God. You do mm-hmm. not have full access to the truth. Yeah. And it, you know, the, I think that like people do surprise us and we surprise ourselves and that's demonstrably true. Or maybe that's, we can be certain about that. Yeah. Um, so, but if you're not certain, you can be curious, you can be curious about the world. Uh, low anthropology really does say that complete comprehensive mastery is just simply not an option for mm-hmm. incomplete, uh, people. That's, that's sort of God's territory, not mine. And so I think there, the door is always open. There's always one, as I say, there's always one more drawer to open before you can make comp- and, and you know the, the final judgment on something, this, that, or the other. So that's how curiosity functions. I think courtesy is simply the acknowledgement that you need to be, uh, I'm, I'm a very uh, sensitive person and you're a sensitive person and that we all need a little bit of help. Uh, shaving off some of the edges. I need I need to be protected from you a little bit, and, <laughs> and you need to be protected from me a little bit, yeah. uh, because uh, my the, the 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 microscope known as marriage has taught me that sometimes I can be abrasive and I can come off in ways I don't necessarily mean to. So courtesy is something that I think accepts that my pure unbridled self may be overwhelming or simply too mm-hmm. caustic for another person to handle at all times. And to yeah. view, to view the only way of living as like, uh, I'm either, I'm, I'm completely phony if I'm at all withholding. I think that's a, um, actually a very entitled way of viewing the world. If you view mm-hmm. yourself through a low anthropology, you think, well, I can, uh, there's a few little things I can do to soften the experience of what it, of, of, of being in a relationship with you. And that's, that's actually necessary for us to love one another. Mm. that's how mm. i'd say courtesy works i mean i, I forget what are the other uh, love uh, let's um, see honesty I, I think again that's that's connected to the idea of certainty or the lack there you know and i, I think it's 
worth mentioning that there's there's nothing about this that is um, uh, suggests there's not ultimate big truth is that I don't have full access to it as a as a limited. Yeah, you know, and Jonathan, that's a, a criticism I hear. It's like, are you collapsing all truths? Are you saying that everything is dissolved in this sort of morass of human imperfectibility? And no, I, I don't think that's our, I don't think the human, uh, that's not what I'm afraid of, at, at least in, in life. I'm not afraid of there being no right or wrong. I think those things are demonstrably true. Yeah. Uh, and they're, um, I'm what I'm the world I experience here right now is an abundance of certainty about things which can't, you, no one can be certain about. And the way that those certainties play out is um, usually um, sometimes in violent ways. Uh, because mm-hmm. if I am totally certain I'm right about something and I'm totally certain you're wrong about something, well, then I am actually, in a lot of people's minds, I'm justified in forcing you to agree with me yeah. or forcing myself on you. And I think that one, just adding a one to two percent, uh, what I was reading about in the Hedgehog Review this week was the, the virtue of bewilderment. Just adding a one mm. to two percent, not undercutting conviction or passion or God-given clarity, even clarity. But clarity today is, is I don't think clarity is actually a synonym for certainty, but it's sort mm. of become that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you add just a little one to two percent of, well, hey, I really feel strongly about this, but I know that there might be, um, you know, and I'm going to fight for it and I'm going to fight you for it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm really going to, you know, do use all my energy to try to further the cause of such and such. But because I know that there's still the tiniest percent chance that I don't see the entire picture, mm-hmm. then I might stop short of, um, uh, you know, shoving your face in the sand, you know, I think, <laughs> yeah. so I'm not yeah. worried uh, when, when I think some people like get worried about, Oh, that you saying there's no absolute truth. It's like, absolutely not. I'm a Christian. I believe in right and wrong. I believe in a created order. I believe in all these, these things, mm-hmm. but I also view that I'm a part of this, these things and rather than the one right. above stand them. outside it. And, yeah. yeah. And I certainly am not the source of reality. Yes. But- <laughs> yes. I mean, just cause just think about it. Like, I think think about dealing with my own parents who I love deeply and and uh, and being a parent myself and I watch as kids are sort of forming this understanding of reality and there's tons of things they don't see and then as you get much much older um you know you lose the ability to perceive certain things I was just at a party last night and like sensory overload is a very real thing and you can't hear mm. stuff and all of a sudden <laughs> you, maybe yeah. at at 43 and I've got I've got full use of all of my limbs and my <laughs> My, I've, I've got a, a decent grasp on things. And even at that point, I know how uh, biased and, and um, motivated I am in terms of how I perceive reality. Yeah. So what chance does that hold for me when I have my faculties start to really fade? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. When, when you're in a room, you can't quite hear everything. You still <laughs> fill in the gaps. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I want to... Talk for a minute. We're before we run out of time. You talk about doubleness mm. um, and willpower, and it's again, especially when it comes to writing. You know, I I feel Romans seven. What I what I want to do, I do not do, and I do what I don't want to do. You know, <laughs> I, I was just before we we got on this call. I was out on the porch trying to trying to write something that 
I woke up this morning thinking I wanted to write. And when I actually got to sitting down, I didn't write it. Mm. Um, and, um, and as you say, we are uh, double in our motives and in our will and in our, uh, you talk about the, um, uh, when the fast food restaurants were required to start posting calories on the, on the menus <laughs> to help people know better than to eat fast food, they actually ate more calories and more fast food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to back up. As you said, when, when, when people started posting the, the calories um, on the, on the fast food menus, in order to help give people more information to make better decisions, mm. it didn't help. It did, it did not because being a human is the experience of being human is really a lot of it boils down to not being able to follow your own advice. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. and that's not that's always a moral thing. It can be to do with the right thing versus the wrong thing, but it can also just be the sort of thing is like I need to know what I need to do today, and you know, there's no one's lives at stake here. There's no sort of 10 commandments at stake. You know, it's like, I just don't seem to be able to do it or what I want to do versus what I know I should do are two different things. And, um, there's all sorts of doubleness is my way of it. You could be tripled, quadrupled, you know, it's a way of, uh, sort of describing what it means to like live inside that movie inside out, like where there's competing, uh, motivations inside a person and often to such extent that we are sort of a mystery to ourselves mm-hmm. and anyone who's a writer knows what it is like to procrastinate or to stare at a cursor on a screen or a blank page and know that there's all sorts of things going on in your head and um, for many of us we have to get to a point where we're either uh, pressure there's the desperation slash fear of what happens mm-hmm. if I don't get this done mm-hmm. or a pure love and passion for it. But until these motivations shake out, not much is going to get written. Um, and so doubleness, I, I ultimately it comes to uh, the matter of addiction is usually a matter of doubleness. And that is where there is a often a moral component. Um, but doubleness is my way of describing the fact that we are all conflicted in that Romans seven way. And that, um, you know, if you don't understand this about yourself or other people, you will kind of come to really hate yourself or mm-hmm. hate other people. Like, why won't they just do what I tell them? Yeah. Um, or why is it, it's the same reason that I can't just do what I tell myself. You know, there's sometimes we're moving through quicksand. Sometimes there, there's plenty of things that I know what to do and I can do it. I can, put on my socks in the morning. I can, you know, drive my kids to school, but, but the, the more emotional, the dial gets turned up, the harder it sometimes mm-hmm. is to say, I, I, I know I shouldn't feel sad anymore about such and such. I know I shouldn't feel angry. Um, but that's not doing much for me in, in terms of actually feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way of which, um, I find the experience and that what the best writing, the writing I love the most is not necessarily hung up. It's, it's, it's interested in Beekner did this really well. I thought, but it's uh, painting the full picture of a person is who is it? What is the, um, what does Faulkner say? The person who's at at odds with themselves, you know, the, um, the human spirit, uh, in conflict with itself. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the great subject of literature and that's the great subject of, of life. And to show that I'm not just one thing or another, I'm this jumble of emotions and motivations and I have a conscience and I have a imagination and I have a, 
you know, desire and I have uh, thoughts and I have beliefs. And these are things that are not always aligned. Mm-hmm. And so who's in the driver's seat at any particular time uh, varies. Um, and it's part of what makes the soup of human behavior so interesting, you know, yeah. so multivalent. And why you can see out of, the, out of your blind spot, some really beautiful things emerge, you know. Um, yeah. Often without you trying to, to make them emerge. Hmm. So as you were moving through the process of writing this book, mm-hmm. I suspect you felt plenty of doubleness. You know, <laughs> you wanted to write a book and you also wanted to, you know, I don't know, enjoy the sunshine. I don't, I don't know what you, what, how did you end up pushing through and writing the book instead of doing something else? Um, well, I do. I'm a, uh, one of the reasons I've, I've found myself to be a writer is that I really do enjoy the process of like mm-hmm. putting words on page, stringing stuff together and something emerging where there was nothing before. I, I, I find that yeah. to be rewarding and in- interesting still mm-hmm. uh, after, you know, at age 43. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, I had have uh, days where I felt like I had to do this for to provide for my children. I had to mm-hmm. do this because I was under a contract. I had to do this for the sake of Mockingbird, which I run and wanting to kind of continue to keep things relevant. And then there's mm-hmm. also the wanting to explore the ideas and wanting to thinking that this was helpful. Uh, m- m- a lot of the motivation of the book is it's like anything. It's incredibly jumbled, but um, there is a sense in which anytime I've talked about low anthropology at length, and I've been a, a preacher, you know, as well mm-hmm. in my sort of day job, at their church, or I've, I've had the opportunity to preach a lot. And I've found that uh, talking about low anthropology is where people feel recognized and seen. And when they feel recognized and seen, they stop hiding. And mm-hmm. usually that's usually a way for light to get in. Yeah. And so I thought this would be a place where I could um, contribute something, as we, we talked about earlier. But, um, you know, I'm also, as as far as getting words onto a page, I had some immense struggles with it. I wrote most of this book during COVID mm-hmm. when my, uh, every writer's got their own rhythms, I guess, but uh, I'm a person that writes in coffee shops mm-hmm. and all of a sudden all coffee shops were closed. And yeah. my experience of like going out to a cabin and trying to write pages is, it, it it's very uh, painful. It doesn't really work for me. Um, mm-hmm. I wish it did. Yeah. So there was a lot of uh, stops and starts. I had a, I have a, a younger brother who is uh, academic and studies these things. And at one point he, he could tell I was stuck. I was paralyzed and I needed some help. I was also pretty depressed at this point. And he, as I think writers go through in this process, and he flew across the ocean and spent three days with me hammering out some roadmaps that I needed. And that got things going again. Um, but there you go. I mean, that's uh, all born that. out of a low anthropology. Like it was him and he's tremendously gifted and much smarter than I am, but he, uh-huh. I needed his help and he, he came at a cost to himself and his family. It was a very gracious mm. thing for him to do. And it got me back on the right track. And then in writing, you know, you get to rhythms and all of a sudden you're like, ah, I just wrote, you know, I just wrote 10,000 words in a week. And, and like, yeah. I'm, I'm happy with most of them. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Everyone's got their own process. That's the doubleness is, is always at the door. And um, even when you're writing about doubleness, it's, it's no less at the door. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
All right. So let me let me ask you uh, a question that I typically end with in these conversations with and this. That is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Um, well, this book I wanted to write because I kept reading books by Alain de Botton, the, the English sweet Swiss um, sort of therapist philosopher guy. Uh-huh. And I kept thinking they're so good and he's so full of insight that he's borrowing from the Christian faith and outwardly and openly. And yet he doesn't go all the way. And mm-hmm. I thought to me, well, here's, you know, I happen to think Augustine was not only right about human motivation, but he was also right about God. And yeah. I'd like to connect the dots for people mm-hmm. in a way that is winsome and is sort of contemporary and um, maybe yeah. more American than European. Uh, the other books, uh, Francis Spufford is a writer who I think is just, uh, he's got such a way with words that I could never emulate, but his book Unapologetic to me was a, um, it, it, it said about trying to make Christianity emotionally intelligible to people who had maybe discounted it or couldn't see the forest from the trees. And that's what this book is really an attempt to do. It's something to give to anyone that is really, um, making the case for why faith in God, it would be alluring or urgent in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that's what I thought his book did very poetically and beautifully and compellingly. And so I wanted to do my own version of that that was sort of bathed in social science. So those are two writers I love. I love, but... I I try to boil my prose down more than some of they them them do yeah. they do. Um, yeah. So I write I write. Uh, Mary Carr is a big influence on me, mm. but um, I also yeah. wrote read a book that was tremendous that, that got me to finish the book. I read read a book called Always Crashing in the Same Car by a, a man named Matthew Spector, and it was about art sort of second tier or like artists who almost made it in Hollywood in the 1970s. And it was brilliantly written, and but not in a way that was um, too intimidating. And it got me over the finish line. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's, well, that's I, I would love to know more about that book. Um, yeah. All right, David. Thank you for being here. Um, I hope lots of people read uh, Low Anthropology and benefit from it. So thanks for writing it. And thanks Thank for you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.